My name's Madeline Johnson, and uh, so I'm the Community Engagement Coordinator at the Mission Campus. And my name's Rob Johnson. I, am, uh, I work in the kitchen here at uh, Northview. Rob and I both grew up in um, non-Christian homes. When you grow up without the Lord, and you, you know, go through your 20s and your 30s without knowing who God is, when you do, um, when you do, when he finally does, like, lift that veil and open your eyes to truth in the world and to um, his son, it's, it's like, it's a miraculous uh, transformation right off the bat because you're like, where has this been, um, you know, for the last 30 years of my life? Looking back, and even though we didn't know him then, that he was so clearly orchestrating every single part of our lives. Uh, Madeline, about 10 years ago, was really sick and was um, in the hospital for four months in a coma, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know. Uh, I prayed pretty much for the first time, not even knowing who I was praying to. And um, that struggle ultimately brought us here because when she came out of the uh, four-month coma, um, we were both like, okay, it's, uh, it was miraculous, and uh, we said, hey, we gotta, we, there's something else out there, and through God's providence, we came to Northview. We came to church for pretty much the first time in our lives, really, and uh, sat down, and we heard the gospel preached, and yeah, for the first time, it made sense. What we found out in our joy of, of um, discovering Jesus was that even though things were great now and Madeline was miraculously healed and everything was going great, that a time would come and a struggle would, would, would definitely surface again in our lives. And what we, what we understood about the character of God was that these struggles were purposeful. Um, so after a couple of years of knowing Jesus and just, and just understanding who God was, we... Um, wanted to start a family and, and kind of pass that on, break the cycle of broken family and um, a family not knowing, a, you know, a household not having Jesus. So I'd gotten through this miraculous recovery. Um, we got in the go-ahead and I got pregnant and everything was perfect and my pregnancy was perfect. Um, Everything was awesome. We were so, so excited to welcome our daughter into this world. And uh, so at 38 weeks, I went into labor. And uh, so we're going to the hospital, getting ready to go to the hospital. And uh, so we got to the hospital and uh, the doctor couldn't find her heartbeat. And there's just no reason. Pastor Vic came from Northview. And he was with us there. And he held her and he prayed for us. And we knew that we weren't alone. God was just right there. And he had us. And he didn't leave us alone. He brought us. He knew this was going to happen. And it was all for his purpose. And he, he knows what the reasons are, and we don't. But it's not for nothing, because 
we get the hope of the future of being with her one day. So it's not just here. So it's not just what happens here because this is just a blip in time. And he, God promises us that at the end of it all, that we're all gonna be in perfect relationship with him and with our loved ones. And we all get to be together again. And that's the hope. And so we can fill that with his promises and his hope and not from outside things because it's all for everything. Because he gave us this opportunity and he gave us this gift of a daughter so that we could understand other people who are going through this. And so you're not alone. We're not alone. We're, we're all going through something and that's okay. And we can be real about it because we have a different kind of hope. Have you ever wondered where you're going to find uh, peace in the midst of the storm? The storm is coming, right? People lose their children in this world. This week I was reading the well-known story behind the song, uh, It Is Well With My Soul. It's one of the great Christian hymns of days gone by. Horatio Spafford was the, was the author of that, of that hymn. He wrote it actually on a boat. But the circumstances behind why he was on the boat and why he was writing the song are Remarkable and make the song especially meaningful, if you know the song. Here's how the story goes. Uh, Horatio Spafford was a prominent, successful businessman in Chicago in the mid-19th century. He, he had enjoyed great success. He was wealthy, well-known, and influential. But overnight, he lost almost everything. The great Chicago fire left him in near financial ruin. So he decided to relocate his family at two o'clock in the morning on November 22nd, 1873. He loaded his wife and his four daughters onto a French luxury liner and kissed them goodbye, promising to meet them in France a few weeks, in a few weeks as soon as he could settle his business affairs. Several days out of port, that luxurious ship sailing peacefully toward France was rammed by an English ship. It only took two hours for the boat to sink to the ocean floor, and 226 people died on that ship, including all four of Spafford's daughters. Nine, day, nine days later, when, when the survivors landed safely at Cardiff, Wales, Spafford received a short wire from his wife. It contained just two words. Saved alone. So as soon as possible, he booked passage on a ship to Europe to join his wife. On the way over, the captain called Spafford to the bridge of the ship, and he said, our instruments indicate we're now passing over the place where your children drowned. Spafford thanked the captain, went back to his cabin, 
And through the tears, he wrote, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. How do you get there? And in the midst of, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the loss of four daughters, in the case of Rob and Madeline, one daughter, how do you get there when your children die? How do you get to the point where you're able to say out loud, it is, it is well with my soul? I mean it. It's just, not just words. But something you actually feel deep in your spirit. It is well with my soul. How do you get past the questions, nagging as they are, and to the point where you can see a future and you can trust in God again? How do you get there? Habakkuk chapter, chapter 3 actually holds some answers to that question. The book of Habakkuk, of course, has been leading us to, the, to this point. You, of course, remember what's been going on in the book. Um, it starts with some big questions from Habakkuk to God. Why can't you give us a better king? I mean, our whole nation is under oppression because the kings stink and they don't honor you, Lord. So will you deliver us? God responds by saying, uh, actually, I'm going to deliver you. It's probably going to be different than what you think, though. I'm going to deliver you through the hand of the Babylonians, who in those days were there, there, that day's ISIS. I'm going to actually hand you over to the hands of the people who are going to cut your heads off. And Habakkuk responds the way you and I would. What? What? That makes no sense, God. You're too pure to use evil like that. What are you doing? Do you not know the rules? We're your people, for goodness sake. You're supposed to care for us. We're more righteous than they are, and you're going to give them a privileged place? You're going to give them victory over us? This makes no sense. You don't make any sense, God. I've said those words. God responds, of course, to Habakkuk's pleading by essentially reminding him, the same way that God reminded Job that I'm actually the God who's in heaven and I'm sitting on my throne and I will do all things right and you will see in the end that all things will be good. It can be rough patches in the process, but in the end, as Ezra said last week, the sliver will come out. The last line in Habakkuk chapter 2 the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. God's in his office. He didn't, he didn't go fishing, even though it looks like it's all a complete mess. He's here. He's going to help. Trust me. Trust me, says the Lord. So finally, in Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk is going to respond, and he's going to respond with a song. It's what you do in the moment of deep emotion. You sing a song to God. He writes a song, much like Horatio Spafford did in the hour of his deep distress. He went to his cabin and he penned words to music. And that's what we're going to study here in the next few minutes. So here's what I want to do. I, I just wanted to take two steps, actually three, but I call it two to make you feel better. Here, number one, I want to show you that there is a place to rest. You can find rest. 
in the midst of the storm. And second, there are two steps to get there. See what I did there? Place to rest and then two steps to get there. Here's the first. Let me try to convince you from this text that there is a place to rest. So I want to start at the end of Habakkuk. And then I want to go back to the beginning of chapter 3 to show you how he got to the end. Here's the end. Verse 17 of Habakkuk chapter 3. Though the fig fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food... Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the height. It's, it's, for most of the history of the world, those words have had more meaning than they do Today. And the reason for that is for most of the history of the world, most communities and societies are what we call agrarian. They are, they are built around the economy driven by farming. So here in Abbotsford, we get that a little bit, but not, not quite as much as maybe, you know, 40, 50 years ago. The way it works in most parts of the world, even today, where farming is the main, you know, economic factor is that you are reliant completely on that year's crop. People don't usually have enough money to put it in the bank. You know, we had a big bumper crop last year. We were able to set aside a whole bunch of money that we made, and we didn't spend it all, and so we put it in the bank. For years and years, they didn't have banks. In parts of the world today, they, they don't make that much money. So you are dependent completely on this year's crop. And most of the world, for the history of the world, has been deeply religious in the sense that they would believe that The crops were a product of God's favor or the God's favor. There's a reason that the people of Israel oftentimes would like get really excited about worshiping Baal. He was called the God of the storm. He could bring the rain. And when you're having drought and your God, Yahweh, is not providing what you think he ought to, you go to the other gods. You know, you go to the other store and you figure out, hey, can you provide what we need for us to survive? And so you do was constantly a temptation for Israel to be worshiping the God of Baal. The point is that God is supposed to provide certain things, namely health for the crops. And yet you have this passage here at the end of Habakkuk where he's talking about the crops, but it's not healthy. Again, uh, though the fig tree doesn't bud, no grapes on the vines... The olive crop fails, the fields produce no food, no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls. In other words, God has let us down in the stuff that he's supposed to provide for us. Yet I will praise him. I'm putting it in modern, maybe modern language. Uh, Though the business is failing, though the doctor says there's no cure, though the creditors are calling for immediate repayment, though there's constant pain and heartache, yet I will rejoice. He makes my feet, you saw this line, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Now, you and I might, like, I don't like hiking, obviously. I mean, I'm not going hiking. So some, some like hiking. I've been invited before. Jeff, want to go for a hike? No. 
But I have been hiking before. And I have been hiking in the Pacific Northwest and this part of Canada and I've been up in the mountains. Uh, I, have, I am not known for my balance by any means. So when you get up high in the mountains and we're taking a hike or whatever and there's like a craggy cliff or something like that, I'm like, I don't think I'm gonna be able to make it across that because I've got a high center of gravity and like, I feel like I'm gonna tip over. I don't know if you've ever been up in those places before though and seen, seen a deer. The deer is like the anti-Jeff. Like if I, go across, if I go across that craggy thing, I'm like down, I'm grabbing the whole cliff. I'm hugging the mountain and just shimmying across the whole thing. Freaked out of my mind, sure I'm gonna fall. But the deer doesn't do it. The deer jumps up and boing, and then boing, and then it just jumps down and up and like ridiculous animals. So confident, so sure-footed. And that's the image that he's trying to, we you can be like a deer on the mountain, cliffs on every side, danger all around. You can sit in the eye of the storm while it's swirling around you. You can be there and feel the deep peace of God. You can say in that moment, yet I will praise you. You can say it. But how? I want to get there. You want to be there. That's, that, that's what I want. If I'm struggling right now, that's what I want. Okay, two steps to get there then. You can find a place to rest, but, but here are the two steps. Number one, you have to remember the God of the past. If you want, if you want to have a place of rest, you've got to remember the God of the past. I'm going to go to verse one now. Show you how he gets to this place of rest and praise. Uh, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianot. Now, don't worry about that. That word just means, you know how sometimes at the beginning of music, I don't read music, but they'll say, this should be played in 3-4 or 2-4. I don't even know if those are real things. I've heard four before in like the, yes, some musicians, 3-4. Does that sound... Yeah, none of you know. They're all in the back, the musicians right now. Okay, and brother's like, yeah, that sounds right. So Shigianot, it was, it was a way of, this is how this song is supposed to be sung. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianot. Sing it this way. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. That's his only plea in this entire prayer. I've heard about what you've done in the past, Lord. Do it again. I remember, Lord, the kind of God you, you are. Would you, just, would you just do it again? And he's going to focus in the rest of the song about how God delivered the people of Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and gave them the promised land. So here's how the, the imagery goes. God, verse three, God came from Teman, the holy one from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. 
He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Okay, so have you ever, do you remember the movies where you see these, um, there's a monster movie? Man, I love a good monster movie. They're so, they're so great, right? Godzilla or King Kong or whatever. There's always a moment in a monster movie. If the filmmaker's done a good job, he will give you glimpses of the monster, right? You know, an eye here, a foot there. You know, maybe he's underwater and his little head pokes up. And the whole movie, you're thinking, how big is this monster? And then there's the moment in, in the film where King Kong emerges and they have the whole scene and he goes, and everybody freaks out or Godzilla comes out of the water and he bellows and everyone looks and says, oh, you know, and they go running. That's what this is an image of. This is, in theological language, we call what's being described here a theophany. It's basically the revelation of the glory of God. Just like there was a revelation of the glory of King Kong, a revelation of the glory of Godzilla. Basically, what he's describing is there was a time where the people of Israel were under oppression, and yet God showed up. And when he showed up, he just spread his chest. And went, ah! Now, you're really uncomfortable with that. I, I get it. I, I, know, I, know, I know you are, okay? But listen to the language. He stood. Verse, verse eight, 6 again, he stood. He shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. I mean, people saw how big he is and went, oh, my goodness. The ancient mountains crumbled. The big barriers that exist between here and Alberta, they just flattened. It's all Alberta. But he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress and the dwellings of Midian in anguish. You know, there's people who were standing over against God. They were like, we're done. There's no way. Right. That's what happens when the theophany shows. That's what happens when the monster shows up. And it's, listen, it's not just for show. God doesn't stand up and scare everybody out of the way and have no power to back it up because what you get next is the description of what can only be described as the divine warrior. And I get it, we're really uncomfortable with this, but I can tell you this is one of the revelation of what God is like in the Bible. So buckle up. Were you angry with the rivers? Verse eight, were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses in your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. With the language we use for that is you locked and loaded. You unsheathed your weapon. You drew your gun. That's what he means. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. In other words, there's no earthly barrier that stood in your way, God. The natural things that stop us from going across, if the bridge is out, we're not going to mission. I can't get across that river forgotten. No big deal. Mountains flattened, no big deal. Verse 11, sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows. Those arrows you collected, you shot them. The bullets you got, you shot them. At the lightning of your flashing spear. 
In wrath, you strode through the earth, and in anger, you threshed the nations. You know, you thresh something, you put the grain. In the ancient world, you throw the grain on the ground, and you step on it to break it apart. Sometimes you'd get an animal to step on it for you, right? Because you thre- that's what it means to thresh the grain. You thresh the nations, Lord. You came out to deliver your people, verse 13, to save your anointed one. You, you crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot with his own spear. You pierced his head when the warriors stormed out to scatter us. Or you, put, you stabbed him in the head. Gloating as though he was about to devour the, the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great, the great waters. See, what's being described here is this grand warrior God who not only shows up and pounds his chest, but he actually follows through Rambo style through everything. You ever seen the movie Taken? Some of you don't. I'm not recommending the movie Taken, okay? But if you have seen the movie Taken, there is a, it's a movie. The premise is that this guy's daughter gets stolen, through a series of circumstances. And then he's on the phone with the kidnapper. Liam Neeson is on the phone with the kidnapper. And here's what he says to the kidnapper. Ready? I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. This, this passage is saying that God has a particular set of skills. That to stand over against him is to be on the wrong side of history. Because he will ultimately achieve his goals. He will ultimately crush his enemies. He won't let mountains or seas or the strongest of enemies stand in the way. So for Habakkuk, you understand, he's like, so even though the Babylonians are going to come and get us and they're the baddest guys on the block, they're nothing compared to the living God. And he's going to show up and save his people. He's done it before. And he's just filling his mind with memories of how God has done it before. So if you want to find peace in the storm, You have to remember that God has conquered storms before. He's got a really good track record of caring for us in the past when things have been rotten, and he can and will do it again. You you have to rehearse it in your mind. What is God's track record? And can I trust him based on it? A few illustrations to help. Um, My son... Uh, Micah, when I asked him, you know, ever do the trust fall with your kids? Do the trust fall with my kids. My son Micah, when he's about like six years old, I said, okay, just fall back into my arms. And he stood there and said, there's no way I'm falling back in your arms, Dad. No, 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 no. Why not? Why not? Because you failed in this before. He said, six-year-old, he said this to me. And he's right, I did. Because a number of years prior, my older son, Ethan, said, I made him do this, will you fall back in my arms? And for, I don't know, there was a fire disc truck in the distance, or my wife was asking me a question or something, and he was standing there, and I was like, I didn't think he was going to do it, right? And he said, he started to fall, and I was like, what's going on over here, right? Kid falls down, he broke his arm, right? He broke his arm. I am a great father. I, he, he broke his arm. 
Now, we talk about this around our house as, you know, hey, you're a great dad. You broke your kid's arm by dropping him. And my son Micah had heard about it. So when, when this comes this time, my son is connecting the dots. And he's saying, listen, dad, you don't have the track record for me to trust you in this thing. You, you don't. But your God does. See, if you have the track record, it yields, it yields trust. I was talking to my father on the phone the other day. He's getting a surgery on his back. And he said, after a few minutes, I said, it's a dangerous surgery. He said, well, apparently, but the, the doctor who, who's doing it, when I asked him if it's dangerous, said, I've done this over a thousand times. I asked my father, did you ask him if he's done it well over a thousand times? I don't, but I assume that that's the case. Done it over a thousand times. Okay, you've done this before. You imagine if you're in an airplane, right, and everything goes wrong, you drop the, starts to shake, and you drop altitude, and those little, you know, the oxygen masks come out of the ceiling, and you wish you would have listened to the person who is talking about it at the front end. Oh, my seatbelt is, how do I work this seatbelt? You're in chaos. You imagine the person sitting next to you and putting their hand on you and saying, listen, stop, 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 stop. I know the pilot. I flew with the pilot. Fighter jets. Never shot, they shot down a hundred. He's never been shot down. He's been in like eight of these kinds of things, but never been in an accident. What happens in your heart when you hear that? Do you say, I don't care, I don't? No, you, you say, okay. He's worthy of trust because of his track record. Listen, you just need to think of your, to yourself for a minute. How has God treated you in your life? When you take the whole of your life and you see how God has acted in your life over all of those periods of time, does what he's done deserve you to trust him because it's a good track record or does what he's done show that, nah, he can't be trusted? I gotta tell you what, I can line up 80-year-old saints up here right now and every one of them and say, let me tell you a few stories, young whippersnappers. Because the Lord has always been faithful. Amen. Even in the moment when I didn't see it gonna work out. It did, just after years, it, it did. And I still maybe have questions, but those questions can be put on the back burner, at least for this moment, because God has never let me down and he never, he never will. You've got to fill your mind with remembrance of the God of your past. He has a particular set of skills. Second, finally, second step, right? You have to hope in the God of the future. You have to remember the God of the past, but you have to hope in the God of the future if you want to be in the eye of that storm. Listen to verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. The so he recounts all of this image of God and how God has saved his people in the past. And he comes back to, oh, I heard about you. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, right? You find it hard to stand when decay's in your bones. My legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Like when I see God and I see how magnificent he is and how he saved us in the past, I know that there is a day coming 
where he will do it again. Because we're his people. And he doesn't let his people suffer for no reason. I will wait. God know, Habakkuk knows that a day is coming when God will judge the enemies and he will save his people. Throughout the scripture, this is called that there's going to be a day of the Lord. A day when God makes everything right. This is the great Christian hope. And the great Christian hope isn't just that you and I are going to receive, you know, some heavenly dwelling. That is part of the hope, but it's also that God is going to put the world to rights. He's going to bring justice where justice hasn't been done. The enemies of God will, will be ultimately, ultimately dealt with. And we have a hope. I don't know if you spend enough time reading the book of Revelation at the end. I really don't. You should read the end of the book. It's really good. Here's what the sovereign Lord says. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Sea was the area of chaos. That's what he means by that. There's no more chaos. All things are put in order. I saw the holy city, verse two, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The work of God has finished. The bride is coming. The wedding's about to start. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The order of death and crying and tears and pain will be passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. You can seal it, guys. It's done. I am the alpha I'm the omega, I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. That's all you need to get in on this is thirst. To know you need it. To know that alone you don't have a chance to stand before this holy God. Those who are victorious, verse seven, will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But... But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they'll be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. You see how those are together, right? God's blessing upon his people and his judgment upon the enemies. Day of the Lord. That's the future. That's, that's our hope. And the people who that was written to, the, the people who received the book of Revelation were in, in dire need. They were underneath massive oppression from the government. They asked questions all the time about where, where is God and why is this happening to us? And so when they read these words about that coming day of the Lord, it's supposed to swell joy, hope in your heart, even though in the present moment it stinks. I don't know if you've ever spent time uh, looking at, at, at some of the great, what's, what's called the old Negro spirituals. It's, called, it's, a, it's a musical genre. Most of the songs were written by slaves who were uh, working in cotton fields or had just come out of the, 
out of their, their master's house receiving a beating, and they used to sing songs along the side of the road. I dare you to sit down with a book of Negro, Negro spirituals, and I, I, I dare you to read through them and see if you can see the thread that runs through all of them. Do you know, do you know what it is? Here, here's, here's one of the most famous ones. When I say the thread, what are they about? Well, here's one of the most famous ones. Swing low, sweet chariot. You know this song? I looked over Jordan. You're lucky. I'm going to You looked over Jordan, and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. What's that about? Pick me up, O chariot, and carry me over to Jordan where the promised land is to the great hope of my future. These people are singing this in the midst of great personal struggle. They've been owned by another person, stolen in many cases from their African homeland, taken to a new land, and enslaved there. And here they are singing about heaven. Deep River, I'm not going to sing this one. My voice is not too deep enough. Deep river, my home is over Jordan. Deep river, I want to cross over into campground. Oh, don't you want to go to that gospel feast, that promised land where all is peace? Deep river, my home is over Jordan. Deep river, Lord, I want to cross over into campground. Listen, my point here is that if you, if you are a Christian, you have such a magnificently glorious future that you barely ever think about. Why wouldn't you think about it more? You'll get stuck in the moment if you don't think about where where you're going. You will. He's coming for to carry us home. There's a great pastor named Charles Simeon who preached in a pulpit for uh, 49 years. The people of his church hated him. I've talked about him before. They used to have pews that you could lock on the ends. And they would lock their pews because I don't like what you're saying, dude, right? This is the ancient form of Twitter. I don't like you. And they'd lock their pews and they'd walk out. And so he would preach to a church that was basically empty in the main seats, but all the people would be seated along the aisles because they couldn't get in. They would sit on the ground or all sorts of things. 49 years. He didn't do that the entire time, but a good chunk of it. He'd walk around town and people would talk about how much they hate him. Much like me, just kidding. (laughs) He was asked when he was 71 years old about how he survived 49 years of opposition as a pastor. This is what he said to his friend. He said, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. We will indeed be partakers of his victory. 
You gotta, you gotta remember the God of the past. You gotta remember the God of the future. And you'll find yourself in an eye of that storm, or better said by our brother Habakkuk, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Let me pray for you. Father, I'm thankful for your grace. I'm thankful, Lord, that uh, this is true. We find ourselves in so many situations, Father, in the loss of children and the, and the pressing questions on why it is that things have happened the way they, they have. I pray that you'd orient our minds about what has been with you, what will be with you, Father. And would you grant us rest? Even though the cupboards are bare and nothing seems to be going right, would you grant us peace? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.